Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. In this episode, I'm interviewing Akim Schluter. Akim is a professor of social systems and ecological economics at Jacobs University in Bremen, Germany. He is also the social science department leader and head of the Institutional and Behavioral Economics Working Group at the Leibniz Center for Tropical Marine Research. Akim was also my primary PhD advisor, and we continue to collaborate together in my postdoctoral research within this working group. Akim has interests in institutional development and change processes, privatization, and what influences human behavior, where he has focused his attention on coastal systems, specifically in Indonesia, Peru, Senegal, and a few other countries. In this episode, we discuss his career path focused on privatization processes and commons governance, how his dual focus on behavioral experiments and qualitative institutional analysis has worked in his working group, collaboration challenges in science, and the challenges of doing research away from your home country. This is the In Common Podcast. You and I, we've known each other since 2015 when I started at ZMT, starting my PhD, and you were my primary advisor. And yeah, it's been wonderful. We've been working together for a long time. So we know each other pretty well, but I'm happy to have you on the, the podcast finally. But for everyone else, it, I think we should go first into your academic background where you started in academia, what your initial interests are, yeah, and what brought you up here to today. Yeah, so I'm a general economist. I studied economics, and it was clear from the beginning. I, I searched basically different universities in, in Germany, and uh, I particularly went into the direction of selecting one which was focusing on institutions, uh, the, the German order liberal school. So, yeah, so I was particularly interested in, in learning about uh, what are the rules of the game you can give society to be pretty good in efficient in, in, in organizing uh, our economy. And that was somehow, I mean, now I'm saying efficiency, but it was always that mixture of normative perspective how do you do that that we have a fair and and, and just uh, outcome of the economic uh, system how we can manage to basically that the poor also gains in that system before starting to uh, study economics i was doing a voluntary service on um basically intercultural exchange with latin america where we spoke a lot about or where we discussed a lot a lot issues of poverty, injustice, unfairness, and so on. It was actually led by a Marxist uh, person. And so that, that was that mixture of, on the one hand, hey, I want to organize the economy the way that it is efficient, that people are happy in doing what they are doing, that they can produce things, and so on. And at that moment, it was mainly... I was mainly interested in the global north, uh, global south uh, perspective. So how can that be that we get so much out of our production and the others get so little and so on? And only then with my PhD, uh, I started actually to, to, to focus more on particular questions of how to to regulate uh, the use of uh, of the environment in our in our economic uh, production process. How much of your thinking was shaped by your experiences abroad or traveling? I mean, I, I see you as someone who's well-traveled, well-versed uh, in different cultures and, and good language skills. Um, was that something that came early on? Because I, I see it now in, in the focus from ZMT, where we're you know basically focusing exclusively on tropical countries. But 
did that come early? Oh, I think that that played or that plays a major role. I think the the main reason why I like so much traveling is because it puts into question on on on, on how I'm organizing things myself, how we are organizing things uh, ourselves. So from that perspective, it, it's nice to see actually how you can how you can organize things in a different way. Often it's about culture, how you organize your family life, how you organize exchange in a community and so on. Uh, and it's basically uh, traveling, going to different cultures is like thinking about institutional diversity, ways of, of, of organizing, of organizing life. And you just see, okay, there are hundred ways. <laughs> and depending on your preferences, wishes, whatever, um, you can do things, you can organize things differently. There is not that one way how to do things. And, um, yeah, that, that is, I think, particularly interesting and, and challenging. And that makes me, yeah, that, that gives me a lot of motivation on, on, on doing my research, just thinking about what are alternative ways of, of organizing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where did you then do your PhD and what did you focus on? Ah, I, I did my PhD in uh, Berlin at Humboldt University uh, at the chair from uh, Konrad Hagedorn. Um, and uh, it was in a project called Kato, which was about uh, the transition, the privatization process in, uh, in agriculture in the former East. So it was a project focusing on Czech Republic, Bulgaria and Poland. And we had a comparative uh, approach and we were analyzing in detail the, the privatization process uh, which was happening there. And uh, there, I mean, I, I think the, the two main lessons, I mean, I, I really enjoyed uh, working on Czech Republic because I was focusing before more on Latin America and then the wall came down. And then I realized that 200 kilometers away from my home, there is another culture I know so little about and another way of doing things. And that was really, really fascinating to, to go there and to study there. And um, yeah, so, so the two main lessons uh, I learned there first, okay, economics, my, my basic field of study mm, cannot provide me with the necessary tools, with the necessary tools I need for understanding a lot of uh, processes of, of, of economic transactions, of, of interaction. And I mean, uh, privatization of land, that was not only of land, but also of cows, of tractors, whatever. That's a very hands-on issue. Yeah? It's really about dividing the pie. Yeah? And I realized, okay, what, what economics has to offer there is rather little. We are not going to understand uh, what is happening there. We need other tools, tools from social anthropology, from other social sciences uh, to understand that. And then the second thing, I don't know, um, <laughs> you haven't lived then. Uh, you, you have lived then at that time, but you haven't been politically aware uh, but the process of, of uh, privatization after communism uh, was really, I mean, you, you could become extremely aware that those processes are heavily influenced by power, by power asymmetries. Um, and yeah, it was really the grabbing hand, uh, whatever former managers of communist state farms, they have had, had the intelligence, the knowledge 
the, the means in terms of money, the networks and so on, to privatize really a huge chunk uh, for themselves. And it was interesting to study that uh, process where you had uh, that contradiction between the political will, which really favored small family farms, and then the the the, the clear power of those economic actors, basically in, in mo- most often um, the, the former state managers or the state managers plus investors who then basically managed uh, to privatize uh, everything for their own for their own sake. So from that perspective, I think two super important two super important lessons I learned from uh, you need other ma- methods than the typical uh, economic methods uh, to study that, and you also need to meander into uh, into different fields from a theory perspective uh, than economic uh, theory. All the other forms of institutionalisms are pretty important to understand that. And then second, hey, uh, power is it, it might depend on the project process you're actually looking at, but in many processes, uh, power is super important uh, for understanding process of institutional change. Yeah. How much of it, so you have this methodological access, how much of it in your early work in PhD was qualitative versus quantitative? And how much do you see that expanding your interest now? And how much was it was reflecting on the scale? So looking at like state level systems, these types of institutions, and how much of it was coming down to individual actions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, two things. So first, the scale, uh, the scale thing. Um, my my PhD was still on the various uh, on the various levels. Yeah. So I studied the laws, uh, and uh, it had on the other hand uh, a very local focus. So I went from farm to farm, yeah, and and try to try to understand that uh, in uh, yeah. Now I'm, or, or in the last, whatever, 10, 15 years, I particularly focused, uh, on the local level. And it was that hands-on, uh, uh, level which interested me particularly. That does not mean that the other levels are not, uh, as interesting, uh, or as important. It was just that I focused on those, uh, things. And, uh, since my PhD, I basically, after my PhD, I went uh, uh, to Scotland, to Newcastle, basically to Newcastle University, but it was a project based in Scotland, uh, to work together with the social anthropologist, with Peter Fillimore, because I thought, ah, I need to study, I need to learn how that really works. And I basically made a long-term ethnography living in a, in, in a town affected by petrochemical production. Um, but to, uh, from then, so to learn better the quality of skills. Um, and for that time, I made, or for many, many years, I basically focused on, on quality research and understanding how institutions have shaped. But uh, then, mm, yeah, obviously, as an economist who is very much thinking in hypotheses and testing those things and has a more positivistic, I, I don't have a positivistic perspective on science per se, but that's also living in 
in me. Uh, I, I think that was the reason why I studied economics as a social science, because I thought, ah, that's cool. You have a clear structure and you can test something and so on. And then I realized, oh, sorry, but that's not the reality. It's much more complex and, and diverse and you can't force uh, everything in such a neat structure. But obviously that was something which I missed, where I just thought, no, I really want to test something. Uh, does whatever greater heterogeneity uh, lead to more more difficulties in organizing collective action or not? And I know that it's a very context-specific answer, but I also want to yeah, generalize and, and, and test that. And basically, it was... Um, where two things which brought me into that uh, direction or or it was basically one thing which brought me into that direction and that was the organization of a summer school uh, of a PhD school uh, together with Eleanor Ostrom in, in Freiburg and she talked a lot about her exper uh, experiments the economic experiments uh, um, she, she did uh, also all the stuff she has done together with Gordon Walker, with Marco Janssen, with, uh, in relation to experiments. And um, yeah, at that time, I thought, hmm, this, this is however, I, I don't think that there is a huge external validity to those lab experiments. That uh, doesn't, uh, that, uh, doesn't work at all. But um, she was then actually reporting on a game. I rem I don't remember exactly how it was called, but um, it reminded very it reminded me very much of um of a of a real life uh, of a real life observation I made, and that was uh, honor honor field uh, honor based flower fields in the region of Freiburg yeah, where you find a lot of fields and people can go and cut flowers uh, cut flowers and they pay money into an honor box and that was very similar to that article which Eleanor Ostrom just wrote um, on a more theoretical level uh, and I thought hey this is such a this is a natural occurring situation uh, and I want to uh, I want to investigate that, and I think with having a natural field experiment, you have a, a real world situation, and and that creates the external validity, um, the external validity with which I want to have, and I want to test certain hypotheses. And at that uh, time, Björn Volan, um, I don't know if he had already his PhD or if he was writing his PhD at that moment, but he was in that summer school, and so. We courses and uh, we get in we got in contact uh, with that farmer who is actually a, a huge entrepreneur um, having a franchise company uh, providing seeds and stuff for farmers uh, uh, in in half of Europe. Uh, so he has a huge experience and knows best or pretty well where the honesty is high, where it's low, and so on. And we set up with him. A couple of experiments and trying to find out what makes people actually behave well and pay and what makes them not to pay. So that basically, uh, that basically brought me back into more experimental and more quantitative stuff. And then I got the opportunity in 2010. I, I basically 
presented that uh, th that study when I was giving my uh, when I presented myself to the Center for Tropical Marine uh, Research um, or Ecology at that time. Um, when I presented me to Bremen, I gave a uh, uh, gave a talk on tulips and the sustainability of fishes. Yeah, and so I tried to bring those two things together. And uh, you can imagine that the natural scientists of the ZMT they were kind of thrilled <laughs> with such a hypothesis testing approach. <laughs> they liked that uh, very much, uh, and I thought, oh, that's a huge opportunity. Uh, also, if you compare, if you are, uh, if you are applying as a social scientist at your natural science institute, uh, then whatever the, the the first funding you get, I mean, from a social science perspective, that's a lot of money. From a natural science perspective, that's rather little. So, say so they, they wouldn't worry uh, too much about that. But I thought, okay, yes, this is my opportunity, and I can basically invest heavily and and try to to make a move being pretty clear that i don't want to give up the research on institutions and the qualitative side of my work but i could meander into into other fields and also to basically expand on on behavioral things and experimental things and that led me actually i i then employed uh, employed uh, bjorn volan uh, as a postdoc yeah, and and we started to think about uh, yeah, particularly natural uh, natural field experiments, uh, whatever that study in that, that study in on Bali where we try to find out what makes people motivate to to use more reusable bags instead of plastic bags to reduce marine litter or the um, or the bribery experiments with Alexandra Gauche uh, and so on where people could. Could take rice, a scoop of rice, and we we would observe how much they cheated in there. Um, and and we also, I mean, I I had at at those in those years, I had a lot of possibilities to basically experiment, uh, and and test uh, different types of uh, of experiments. Yeah, and I, I I enjoyed very much that testing that 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 clearness somehow <laughs> that clearness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How much of it? I mean, this focus on field experiments versus lab experiments, how much of that was conscious in trying to say we have this opportunity at ZMT now focus, which is in Germany, but exclusively focused on uh, tropical areas, tropical countries to kind of move beyond not only to go for the, the external validity, but to move beyond this idea of, of the weird uh, understanding of behavioral science, that a lot of the understanding of human behavior was done in lab experiments on mostly white, educated, Western, rich, developed countries. And then how much of that for you has like been a way to find something new about human behavior to, to, to really look in and explore human behavior in, in, yeah, in a setting which it traditionally hasn't been or, or hasn't been really pushed forward in behavioral economics? Yeah, yeah, I hope I get it all well lined up. It was pretty interesting for me to find out that, uh, or, or for me, it was clear that the main emphasis of my research should be on field experiments, yeah? And if better, even better, natural field experiments, yeah? 
So, and, and only to a little degree artifactual field experiments where I thought, okay, that's also an interesting way of basically communicating with fishers and, and see how they would behave uh, and so on. But I also thought, no, I want to gain some exper experience in, in proper lab experiments. And I also thought, hey, my natural science colleagues, they also do uh, lab experiments, yeah? And, and they do experiments in the Marais, and they infer from that uh, on what might help, uh, what might happen in the in the Red Sea, uh? and uh, and and they think that a coral in Marais would behave similarly as in the Red Sea. And I thought, okay, that that should lead also to a certain understanding that I also do those experiments uh, with weird study subjects in a in a Bremen <laughs> Bremen environment and. We've done uh, stuff with Nicola Ceruti, uh, where we basically worked in the Bremen lab, and and I also done some things with Agostino uh, and with Katie uh, Nelson, uh, where we where we where we let people use uh, dynamic resource uh, or play dynamic resource experiments. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, there was rather little understanding from there was kind of an intuitive. Um, reaction of my natural science colleagues that they thought that is weird. <laughs> Why are you? <laughs> you that, that that is not that is that doesn't provide reasonable findings. Uh, if you're doing um, if you're doing research with university stu uh, students uh, and uh, with university students, uh, and that should should give us any any clue on how a fisher should behave and 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 adopt to more sustainable uh, to more sustainable behavior yeah? and and obviously whatever last year i read uh, the joe henrich uh, book uh, on weird uh, study subjects and yes indeed it is and and also my 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 experience doing those lab experiments i really had extremely great doubts if that is having any external uh, external uh, validity, and I mean from there, you know that uh, whatever we we developed in the direction of um, uh, with Carlo uh, Gallia, uh, where we describe where we analyzed in group out group behavior in Indonesia uh, versus uh, the, the traditional dictator games which are played, where I then became more interested. Uh, in, in, in doing that in a cross-cultural perspective and trying to understand uh, what is different uh, in, in, in different places. I mean, we found in, uh, we found in that study um, outgroup favoritism where we have been extremely astonished. We thought, how can that be <laughs> in, in, in an Indonesian setting that you find outgroup favoritism and, and we wouldn't find that even in, in, in Western societies where you would, arguing with Joe Henrich, you, you would assume that outgroup favoritism might be stronger in Western uh, societies than in Indonesia. Um, uh, but, but we found that it might be that the setup uh, wasn't uh, completely right. But I mean, there have been people who have huge experience in experiments who have been involved and we uh, we had 450 study subjects. So it was pr a pretty big study. And, and somehow with that study, uh, which we published in games, um, I realized, OK, hey, it's 
it, it was fascinating to to find that. Yeah, but then we had difficulties to really interpret the results, and we realized, okay, we as economists, and and not having a lot of time, not doing interviews with people. Where I I remember the discussions I had with Ivan Graini from IPB Bogor, discussing how she could explain that we that we had. Uh, those uh, that that we observed, what we observed, we went a little bit into the direction that there is a tough uh, competitive pressure between students uh, in that particular place. We also um, thought about that uh, Muslim giving behavior might play a role, but that was all extremely shallow. And I also, as interpretations, where I thought, okay, that's not the way how my social anthropologist uh, colleagues w- would go about and try to understand why we found that, uh, that that outgroup favoritism. And I also realized that writing that article, um, yeah, what interested was really yeah, the, the experimental results, and then it was sufficient to present a certain speculation on why that might be. And that was also one of the reasons why I thought, okay, I need to to focus again a little bit more on the institutional and more qualitative case study uh, case study approach. Hmm. That was actually that was actually one of the reasons. Uh, uh, and another reason was uh, definitely also that I realized, or, or two of the reasons was that the heterogeneity in my working group was to a certain degree uh, a difficulty. I think it was already over when you came uh, at uh, at ZMT, but I had the impression that the the interdisciplinarity in my group was a little bit too too broad. So those who were running experiments. They had difficulties to understand or, or had difficulties to, to really say, okay, that's meaningful what you're doing in, in your qualitative research and vice versa. And it was also difficult to whatever, for example, reading papers together. That was, uh, that was quite, um, that was quite, uh, difficult. And then the second reason was obviously that I realize it's so difficult to to be really good in 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 various fields. Yeah, I was constantly feeling, oh, I'm not up to date. Um, I mean, I'm still at the having the feeling that I'm not up to date. But I thought, okay, trying to be up to date in two fields, uh, that is uh, that is too too hard, and you and you basically it's too too difficult. And uh, then I thought, okay, in the sake of of good PhD supervision, it's probably probably also good to, to to focus a little bit on 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 yeah on, on the institutional side. Having said that, I, I've just been at Nordstrand uh, with Deshawn and 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 testing basically. It's not that much uh, 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 an experimental study, but clearly hypothesis driven study. And I realized, okay, that's still fascinating me a lot uh, to do this this kind of research. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to follow up on on two aspects of that, which both relate to collaborative science and partnership building. And one is building partnerships with foreign partners or partners abroad. I mean, this is pretty much essential and and also mandatory to some extent, um, depending on the countries working in, that we... Yeah, partner because we have to work in foreign countries at our institute. We have to partner with 
researchers who work in those countries and also necessary to understand the cultural context as you said and that how you might understand a finding from an experiment but that's a very shallow understanding in terms of explaining the culture and a social scientist working in other countries um a lot of a lot of the solution to that or part of it is to have phd students postdocs who come from those countries and those are the ones who are doing those projects but i'm interested in your thoughts on the challenges of building um those types of foreign science partnerships and how that's uh, an evolving process um, in the countries where you work on. Uh, maybe we can start with that. And the other one is more partnerships in terms of interdisciplinarity uh, challenges and how, what are some of the lessons that you've taken from being at ZMT? I mean, in Freiburg, I obviously this is more of a forestry or economics focused uh, uh, institute where you were and then coming into a, a dominated uh, natural science or an institute where the social sciences, I think we're in a 20% or 25% or something mm. of the institute. And the lessons there, um, and I found it particularly interesting how you said the diversity even within your own group um, was a challenge and this kind of misconception, I don't know if misconception is the right word, but that sometimes interdisciplinarity within the social sciences is more difficult because you have quantitative and qualitative approaches, whereas between the natural sciences, um, if they're both quantitative approaches, I think some of the methodological understandings are a little bit more eye level, um, whereas the qualitative quantitative in the same working group can sometimes be completely missing each other. <laughs> um, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on both of those types of partnership challenges. Yeah, 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 yeah. Probably I start with the with the challenges of um, uh, of, of getting proper in contact with um, with partners in, in different countries. I mean, when I was coming in uh, to, to the ZMT, one of the major partners uh, where, where research was done was uh, Indonesia. Yeah? Indonesia is a super interesting country. And I was already saying before, because I had my, my diploma thesis supervisor, he was working substantially in Indonesia. And I always thought, okay, if I ever have the chance to learn a language uh, from an, from Asia, yeah, I would go for Bahasa, yeah, because that might stick my little brain, and I would be able to do that. But now I'm working with Indonesia since ten years, and I still do not know Bahasa. I never had that opportunity to learn it properly. I I did not have the. I was always dreaming and saying, okay, I go for three, four, five months. Uh, to, to Indonesia, I work from there, and every morning I start with two hours Bahasa lessons, uh, and then I might be be able to do that. Yeah, and but but I never managed, and I'm still working a lot uh, in in Indonesia. Yeah, and and it's super fascinating. Uh, I really enjoy uh, working there. It's a super puzzling uh, culture, but I realize how difficult it is as a social scientist um, to basically. Yeah, uh, I I would say I will never properly understand. Yeah, I mean I'm working a lot with with students from from Indonesia, and and there I I get insights uh, on on that culture. Um, but nevertheless, it it still yeah it it will remain uh, difficult. I I was super happy 
that uh, I found basically Eva Andraini or Eva Andraini as our uh, partner at IPB Bogor. She did her uh, she did her uh, PhD at, at the same chair from uh, Konrad Hagedorn, yeah? and that's interesting how. How, how your your brain is structured somehow by the place where you're living and on the other hand the theory uh, you have worked with I mean she focused particular on on Oliver Williamson and, and institutional theory obviously something I know also pretty well and it's nice how that actually has stuck to her brain <laughs> and somehow we, we, we have a certain joint understanding and on the other hand yeah, we also have both an experience of, yeah, she is obviously from Indonesia. I have visited quite often Indonesia and she has lived in Germany and, and that made her puzzle a lot on how we odd Germans uh, are. And from that perspective there, I'm enjoying very much uh, the exchange that was, was also the reason why we we have established the C-Track project about uh, the tragedy of cognition in in um, understanding sea level rise, where we compare uh, Indonesia and and Germany, I mean, one of the reasons was, hey, we are so puzzled about the differences in the two places, and we want to understand them more. But it's a super challenge, yeah? um, and and due to those historical reasons, we have been focusing very much on on Indonesia. On the other hand, due to my Spanish uh, abilities, I should. I should work a lot more in Latin America. Yeah? I mean, I've done a good part of work with uh, with Roger uh, Madrigal in Costa Rica, being my first uh, PhD student still uh, in Freiburg. Yeah? But uh, we had difficulties to, to find proper funding, larger, uh, larger projects. Uh, I have that Humboldt's tipping project in, in Peru. And the one with the GIZ in uh, in in Colombia about payment for ecosystem service, but relatively where I feel very confident of being in Latin America, I know I can speak with most of the people and also the dominance of the Spanish language. And uh, in most of the places where we are working, uh, indigenous languages are not that uh, that prominent. So from that perspective, I can basically interact uh, with everybody and I feel very comfortable uh, but I don't have that many projects it's <laughs> difficult at the moment to find money uh, for that uh, uh, part uh, of uh, of the world and um, yeah that, that leads to a certain degree also because of the, the the funding opportunities are going very much towards sub-saharan Africa uh, and that made me also yeah, start working in Ghana and and in Senegal, or basically, it was a mixture of my own interest uh, and uh, uh, and 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 opportunities uh, uh, we had. But there, I also realized uh, that whatever knowing French doesn't help you that much. Uh, being in Senegal, you're not going. You you might find whatever the leader of a fishing community to be able to speak with, but even that might be a challenge but you're not really able to interact. And I think that is an extremely huge uh, challenge in, 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 in our particular, um, yeah, in our particular research field, where I think it's very important to do down to earth research. And that's also what, what interests me. Yeah? I want to understand how whatever 
uh, a fisher is is solving the challenge between whatever the emerging tourism sector uh, and the old fishing uh, uh, um, the, the fishing uh, job he used to have or st- he still has and so on. That's something I want to understand and that requires uh, local the knowledge of, of of the local language and it's super difficult. I mean, I'm just we we're seeing that with. Um, but but it's even difficult if you're choosing people from the country. Yeah? I mean, we have at the moment the problem with Adiska uh, in in Lombok, where she needs to speak Sasak. Sasak, uh, she obviously doesn't speak Sasak. We have the same um, we have the same situation with Hudu in in Ghana, uh, coming from inland, and he doesn't speak Ewe from uh, from the coast. I mean, you you realize. How much easier it is for them to move around in, in that country, yeah. And there is still a huge advantage that they are doing um, the research, uh, or, or what does it mean? It's a huge advantage. I think it's the combination of both, because uh, coming into a different culture and observing that different culture. I mean, that's my own experience that you realize you can observe a lot of things which you're otherwise taking for granted if you're coming from that culture. Huh? And on the other hand, I will never, ever gain that many insights into the Indonesian uh, culture, what what gets uh, Adiska or Rifki. I mean, they, yeah, it's their culture. Yeah, so so this is one challenge um, for, um, yeah, if you're working in a, Tropical Marine Institute, and you're based uh, based in Bremen. And and on the other hand, I mean, I'm super grateful to to the German government <laughs> that we have that opportunity uh, to do that research. And I mean, we're all living in in a pretty small world. Uh, we have a lot of uh, of implications, whatever. If whatever the fish is fished uh, in in Senegal. From European uh, ships, if we are the tourists uh, making holidays in Gili or or whatever, we have a lot of implication on those uh, ecosystems. So from that perspective, it's it's really good if we are researching on them together in a partnership. And yeah, so from that perspective, it's, I think it's needed and good, and I'm grateful that I have those opportunities. And um, yeah, if, if, talking about the the other. Uh, challenge uh, you have addressed <laughs> the natural social and social social uh, um, science problems of of interdisciplinarity or problems or or opportunities. I mean, I, I'm just writing at the moment um, a research proposal together with Tim Yenayan, biochemical. Uh, Biogeochemist, <laughs> if I'm right, you realize even even addressing them properly uh, with their disciplinary focus um, is is still a difficulty. But you realize how super important those different different perspective, natural science perspectives are on solving the problem. I mean, he's looking very much at CO2 flows in rivers, very much land sea interaction and what what whatever changes in land use cover what what are the implications then on estuaries and, and so on and you realize oh that's super important uh, to understand that um, and and obviously on the other end how you're regulating those things what is the governance system yeah is definitely yeah also a needed input 
from from their perspective. Uh, uh, on the other hand, how to organize that properly? What what I realize more and more is for many for many of those problems, you need a lot of communication. Yeah, you you need to like the people very much with whom you are working. And and otherwise, it's it's often a, a multidisciplinary challenge. Yeah? So we need to know what the other is doing. Uh, we need to understand it. We need to learn about the the approach. But it's not that I would need to learn something about, or or that I would I need to learn something about his methods. Yeah, but I don't need to apply some of his methods and try to bring them in my field and whatever. I mean, we, we need to have a good knowledge and, and understanding of of what the other is doing for basically appreciating it and to thinking, oh, that's really useful. Yes, I, I understand why he is so fascinating, uh, fascinated by that uh, topic. But uh, for, for many, many questions, uh, it is sufficient to to, to have that and and it doesn't need to be really interdisciplinary. I'm interested to hear a little bit about your interest in privatization. We talked a little bit about uh, institutions and, and behavior in relation to the various field experiments that you've done. But you also have this interest in privatization. You led a paper uh, last year, or was published last year, about ongoing ocean privatizations and uh, the challenges there. We've also worked together on, on other things related to this. I know your work in... Um, Peru's work on privatization as well. What are your your interests there, and why do you think it's a, a particularly uh, timely or, or pertinent issue in, in the coastal space? It's interesting. I remember a discussion I had with Michael Flitner uh, in 2010 or 11. I just recently came to uh, to Bremen, and he knew about my PhD work I've done on privatization. Yeah? And he was saying, Achim, you're meandering into the right, into exactly the right field. There is a lot of uh, things to do for you because I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the, the oceans as the last remaining big commons. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure there is happening, there is happening uh, a lot within the next whatever decades to come. A lot of property rights, uh, a, a lot of property rights will change. And then I think, I mean, it was a mixture of uh, whatever the blue growth agenda, which was becoming more prominent, uh, whatever more organizations were developing um, a blue growth uh, agenda, uh, whatever I work, was working here with people who are trying to explore the potential of deep sea mining um um so so completely new economic uh, activities um obviously also our cost action which brought us more on on governance uh uh governance of ocean sustainability <laughs> that's i think what it was uh, called uh, which brought us in contact very much with the with the mara people from the mara network um uh, and there, in particularly of uh, of Martin Bubbing, uh, the entire world of too big to ignore, and so on, which brought me or which made aware of which made me aware of of the processes which are happening, where people are excluded from resource use, where obviously getting to know also more coastal issues, the coast and the topics, where you have a lot of 
yeah, asymmetries and capabilities in, in, in power and so on, uh, all issue in relation to uh, what's happening in the tourism sector and whatever, go, go to Zanzibar and have a look how the beachfront is basically taken over in, in that uh, uh, project we've done together with Anik Javaid, where you just realize, okay, hey, uh, the women are not getting to the shore anymore to do their seaweed, or they realize that the hotel owner from Italy really doesn't like that they're doing seaweed farming <laughs> on the beach, and you, you realize, okay, the return on investment uh, for that... Uh, tourists for that italian tourists uh, probably in a dra inappropriately dressed in a bikini <laughs> in a zanzibar muslim context <laughs> you realize okay there are interesting or yeah to, 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 to say interesting uh, power issues at play um yeah but th that's an important point to think about how can we structure those processes how can we manage them so uh, how can we help basically that, that they are managed in a fair way? Um, yeah, what are the mechanisms which are driving those processes? Um, yeah, that is just an extremely, I think, timely, timely issue. And where I also think that theories of institutional change have uh, a lot to offer to explain why, why things are happening as they are happening and what could be potentially done to basically that they're that they're developing in a different direction. Yeah, one thing we discuss and I often get the impression is that privatization is seems to be more skewed towards negative framings as a negative process. And I'm interested in how you think, you know, how privatization processes or allocation of property rights might be the more appropriate way to, to think about that along the spectrum of property rights. Um can be used also for empowerment, for ensuring the rights of certain actors and for um, making positive transitions, for example, as you mentioned, ocean governance for sustainability. What's the role of privatization there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm potentially unhappy that we framed it as privatization. Yeah? Because, I mean, in, in the privatization discussion, you have, on the one hand, those who see the devil of capitalism arising eh? and and a lot of inequalities, whatever happening. And on the other hand, you find those who are saying, ah, privatization, that is helping us to, to solve the tragedy of the commons and ITQs are the right way uh, forward and so on. And uh, probably what I'm most interested in is thinking about intelligent property rights configurations, which help us to solve sustainability, uh, to solve inequality issues. Yeah, and yes, indeed, I'm an economist. <laughs> Sometimes it might be right uh, to allocate rights to to somebody. Yeah, to make him or her feel responsible for something. And that in, in, in many cases, yes, it, it might be reasonable to, to have somebody who is responsible for something, yeah? but who that actually is, yeah? it might be an individual. In, in many cases, due to the characteristic of the sea, it might be a group of people, it might be whomever. But basically, 
what we see clearly, if we are looking to the social and to the ecological problems we have with the ocean is, yes, we need to think about clever institutional arrangements. Yeah? And whoever holds them, the property rights, now, that is um, a, a different issue. And, and yes, indeed, to secure rights uh, for people who do not have traditionally any rights, might it be whatever, somebody working on a big trawler, some, a, a small, a, 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 a small and, uh, um, small and medium sized fisher, uh, might it be whatever, a small hotel owner, um, that is pretty, that is pretty important to think about, uh, effective, uh, property rights for those people. Hmm. Yeah, it was this may be a, a shift towards a different direction, um, but I'm interested in how you see the role of of yourself as a professor these days, and and how you kind of think about your day to day planning, what you tend to do on a day to day basis, and how that fits into doing research. And I'm interested in this. Perhaps it's a general trend. It's kind of the impression that I get that a lot of professors, seniors, scientists, a lot of the research is done through the projects they they acquire, where they're the PI. But um, in terms of the empirical work, it's done by a lot of uh, younger scholars. So a lot of postdocs are doing the the empirical research, or even PhD students are doing most of the the, the field work, for example. Um, and that kind of tension between that professor or senior scholars want to acquire projects and have that research done by early career scholars and the kind of overinflation of educating early career scholars with PhDs where it's flooding uh, a job market where it's maybe not everyone needs to do a PhD for their job interests where they're going to not everyone's going to stay in academia and the people that do is really creating a extremely competitive um, market um, for those for those and seeing how you think about that that tension <laughs> many many questions at one uh, at one time um yeah i think th this this focus of uh, of of a professor basically focusing on organizing research managing research getting new funds uh, and so on I think that's a particular German illness of the German science system. I have the impression that uh, they are, that 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 people in the U.S. American system, for example, have more more time in doing those things. Potentially, it's just wishful thinking, but I have the impression, looking at some of my colleagues, yes, they are still doing more uh, research uh, on, on on their own, and that's a little bit sad. I was just yesterday looking for a time management course uh, for that, that I thought, oh, I need to, to do that better, to have more time and to really focus every morning for three, four hours uh, on, uh, on, on my own research or on proper, yeah, on, on proper research. Um, but then I realized whatever I was finishing yesterday night, having still 40 emails in my inbox, uh, which I had to work on. And I thought, no, I, before I start with the interview this morning with, uh, with Stefan, I want to get rid of some of them. And then I ended up filling whatever uh, a, a, a table for our evaluation package on where we have research collaborations uh, going on. Uh, and to a certain degree, yes, I feel... Uh, feel trapped uh, in there 
On the other hand, I also feel pretty comfortable in my role in, in organizing and in, in, in providing an opportunity for, for young scholars to, to do research. And I think that's the most fun part of my job. Uh, that I'm I'm working with people who are super highly motivated, <laughs> who really like to like to find out things, yeah, and to think with them together on yeah on yeah on on trying to understand uh, under, understand the puzzle and to a up to a certain degree, I'm happy to, to be kind of the second hand researcher. I really feel like a second hand researcher. <laughs> And, and basing all my my thoughts on, on 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 people who have much more profound knowledge of the particular context, but I have promised to myself uh, that I want to go in in November December to Senegal and really to to focus a little bit more on that uh, work. Yeah, with the and and you're right with with the flood of. PhD students and postdocs, we are producing, and also on another level, I mean, we realize that our the institute finances are getting to a kind of um, distorted situation with all those third party funding and so on. Um, that that there are various reasons which might indicate um, which might indicate, hey, we should uh, we should reduce a little bit, yeah. And, 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 and not educating that many, uh, uh, postdocs and PhD students. On the other hand, having said that, it's an interesting thing. Uh, as an economist, I'm thinking quite often on why are you doing actually a PhD? Is it an investment or is it a consumption? Whatever. For, for me, it was very much, I just felt very privileged, uh, of having three years to trying to understand privatization in Czech agriculture. Uh, and I thought, okay, it's also the the way itself is a beneficial thing and it's a meaningful thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, obviously as a whatever family father, I was thinking, okay, it also needs to <laughs> needs to provide a living <laughs> at a at a certain moment in, in time. Uh, and uh yeah, particularly for for PhD students, I I think the PhD also helps you in in doing other things better than than a scientific career. Yeah, and and obviously it's not possible that all the PhD students I have would end up in science. Nor do I think that this is this is relevant. That this would be necessary. No, I think it's good to have time to reflect more in, in depth. I have learned a lot in those three additional years of studies. And yeah, and, and I also think that there, that those years are enabling the students to, to do better or, or other kind of, uh, of jobs. Then later on, you're right. I mean, we have a responsibility towards those people which we're taking on, on board. Which are doing a postdoc uh, with us, and and yes, that's a that's a challenge, as you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on the this kind of. I, I see someone, and and just through all the projects you've acquired, is quite successful, very successful in acquiring third party funds over the last ten years or so, and how 
the shift towards making the science system more competitive in terms of having always to prove yourself every single time for uh, getting third-party funds to continue doing your research. Um, what you see as kind of the benefits of, of that system versus the negative sides of that and how much time it might take and uh, um, at some point you're never trusted um, and the science system could say to to hold money for extended period of time. Um, yeah, do you also see that maybe that's also specific to the German system where there's quite a bit of third-party funding? But um, yeah. mm. it's interesting, particularly at the beginning when I I had to write a lot of uh, a lot of proposals. Um, um, I was thinking, coming from a very economic uh, uh, thinking, um, I was always asking myself and trying to make calculations in my head. Obviously, you can't do yeah, it's it's not a it would be a very difficult empirical research question, but I was asking myself um, if basically the transaction costs we spend on writing the proposals, yeah, if that is actually compensated by the efficiency gains uh, we make uh, by by having this uh, competitive uh, competitive system, yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, the, this is a mixed bag. Uh, what, what you would, I mean, I, I would lean towards. Hey, I think we are we, we're spending too much energy in organizing competition <laughs> and having less competition. I mean, I don't think that even in prior times. I mean, the 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 academic system, yeah, which is anyhow built on on competition, just. You are the author of a paper. You are competing with ideas, um, whatever. We have already at that level, at the output level, yeah? We will not get rid of that competition, yeah? That, that will be there, yeah? And I don't know if we really need also that level. No, I'm pretty sure we don't need that level of competition, uh, also at, at the, at the project uh, at the project phase yeah and i mean it leads to a lot of distortions if you think uh, at the moment i mean what we need to deliver are good numbers uh, in how much third party funding uh, we have yeah and that's obviously a, a wrong incentive i mean what counts i mean what what we want to get out of the tax money is reasonable research fundings uh, findings yeah if we are even spending less yeah and if we need less input that would be a better result. So if I'm able to produce a lot of meaningful research yeah, without spending um, a cent or just having me as a person, yeah, that would be actually the most reasonable output I could ever produce in, in terms of efficiency of the system. And I mean, you, you also, I mean, you also see it with what competition and too strong competition makes uh, to people. Yeah. I mean, and it comes along with a lot of uh, uh, non-permanent contracts uh, uh, for researchers and so on. And uh, yeah, from an efficiency perspective, I would think we, we would gain a lot if we would take more money out of that uh, competitive process and allocate it more permanently, um, more permanently into the science system and just have uh, trust in people that they they would work and so on. I mean, a particularity of the German system is you have until a very high age, until let's say 40, 
you are never properly, you, you don't get any permanent contract. And then you are so secure in the system uh, that actually you can't be sacked by any means. I, I have to say, I don't hardly know from the top of my head, I wouldn't know of any colleague who really who really takes advantage of that situation and is saying, I'm not working anymore. Yeah? But I mean, it's I think it's extremely unproductive that we have a lot of, let's say, agile brains, <laughs> so young people <laughs> who, who are working and have to worry about all those. I have to write another project proposal. I can't have longer-term research relationships, as you were saying. I mean, or as we were discussing uh, before, uh, that we are meandering from Indonesia to Latin America to to Africa is also an effect of, of the funding structure we have. If we have more fu- more permanent funding, yeah, then you could say, okay, no, I'm I'm becoming the expert of X Y Z, or the ZMT could say, no, we have a particular emphasis on. We have developed the twenty years research collaboration there, and that's where we focus on and so on. And that is not possible due to the competitive system of of third party funding uh, we have. So that's yeah. If I would be the minister of science and education, we have now one from the FDP from the Liberal Democrats. Uh, we might continue with that competitive frame. <laughs> But I would potentially tweak the system a little bit more to less competition and less third-party funding. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, Akin, before we wrap up, I'm interested to to hear what interests you going forward. What are some of the, the projects either that you're doing now, which you find fascinating um, and want to invest time in, or things in the next year, five years or so, where you think uh, that's really where I want to focus my energy and time? Yeah, I, I think I want to focus on Der Schuster bleibt bei seinen Leisten. I don't know how to translate that saying in, into English, but uh, basically focusing on your core competency. Um, so the institutional questions, and yes, I think the polit- from a political perspective, uh, that privatization issue combined with that blue growth, uh, blue growth, blue economy ideas, that is, I think, Pretty important to have their critical perspective on on, uh, on those issues. Uh, that uh, that is super that is super important. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, content wise, project wise, I think I'm focusing in the next uh, time to come. I hope to get uh, the the Humboldt tipping project uh, renewed in Peru, where where that important privatization uh, process which locked out a lot of small-scale fishers or basically gave a huge lucrative uh, uh, economy or economic sector scallop farming uh, from small-scale fishers to rather uh, big big players I want to understand that uh, much better um, than uh, second uh, that uh, in in the blue economy realm basically what kind of what kind of property rights could be given in a mangrove system to to allow for more storage of of, of CO2 
without basically that it has negative repercussions in relation to uh, to equality and development opportunities uh, for those who heavily depend uh, on those research. That's a project proposal which we're currently writing uh, together with uh, Tim Yenarean, so a good uh, part of I'm the only social scientist in a group of nine nine other uh, groups uh, uh, of natural sciences. And then, um, yes, all, all the issues in, in the Senegal region, where it's also about property rights, where you have a lot of uh, fish meal production, the Chinese uh, changing a lot of institutions, uh, um, yeah, the international fishing fleet and so on. And on the other hand, a heavy dependence on a heavy dependence on on small scale fisheries for nourishing people. I think these are going to be, in concrete terms, the three things I really want to to focus. I hope I haven't forgotten any important of my any important projects of, of whatever any PhD student or postdoc of mine. But these are more my my broad interests in the in the near future. Maybe going to Indonesia and learning Bahasa at some point. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do so. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Aking. It was really nice to, to finally have you on and chat a bit. That was fun. Yeah, really, thanks a lot uh, for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is produced by Michael Cox, Courtney Hammond-Wagner, and myself. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on any podcast app or listen on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. On our website, you'll find our link to our blog and our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InCommonPod.